From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time, and this hour, the latest on the Supreme Court on abortion pills and the debt limit dispute in Congress with Ron Elving. Also, evacuations in Sudan. What help might Abrams tanks and other Western weapons be to Ukraine? How melting ice spreads all over the world, how Taiwan became a chip giant, and Dennis Lehane, who writes best-selling crime novels with a Boston accent on his latest book, Small Mercies, written while he was otherwise engaged. This book was written while I was actually running a television show, and it came out of me because it needed to come out of me, which is how you become a writer in the first place. First, our newscast, it's Saturday, April 22nd, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. A week of intense fighting in Sudan has left more than 400 people dead. And with the main airport in Khartoum closed, thousands of foreign nationals are trapped. Now the head of Sudan's army says it will assist in the evacuation of citizens and diplomats from the U.S., U.K., France, and China. Here's Kate Bartlett reporting. The leader of the Sudanese army has said an evacuation process for foreign nationals will begin in the coming hours after receiving requests from foreign leaders that he allow for the safe passage of their citizens. The paramilitary group the army are fighting, the Rapid Support Forces, have also said they are open to allowing foreigners to leave, but there are still reports of ongoing gunfire in Khartoum despite a ceasefire being called on Friday, which is necessary for the evacuation. The Pentagon has pre-positioned U.S. forces in nearby countries to assist in evacuations if necessary, but the White House has warned that Americans who are not embassy workers, they will not be able to rely on help from the military. A widely used abortion pill remains available. For now, the Supreme Court has blocked restrictions set by lower courts in Mifepristone, meaning that the drug will remain available in states where abortion is legal, at least for now. Abortion providers expressing relief, as Michigan Radio's Kate Wells reports. Hours before the court's announcement on Friday evening, Dr. Audrey Lance of Northland Family Planning in Metro Detroit was talking with a patient. And that patient was terrified that Mifepristone might not be available for her appointment next week. And I just hate that my patients have to be put through this roller coaster. Um, It is just completely unfair. So I, I hope that My patient and many other patients are also feeling that relief that I'm feeling. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, patients from as far away as Texas and Florida have been coming to Michigan seeking legal abortions. For now, they will still be able to get the most effective form of medication abortion while this case plays out in federal court. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In Alabama, a funeral service being held today to remember one of the victims of the mass shooting last week at a birthday party in the town of Dadeville. Detroit Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports. Corbin DeMontre Holston was 23. He graduated from Dadeville High School in 2018, where he played both football and basketball. In media accounts, his mother described him as selfless when it came to his family and friends and that he always tried to be a protector. Also killed at that Sweet 16 birthday party were two high school seniors and an aspiring musician, ranging in ages from 17 to 19. This week, Alabama law enforcement officials announced the arrests of six suspects, each charged with four counts of reckless murder. Police have not yet released a motive for the shooting. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Troy, Alabama. And you're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts leaders are reminding residents about the safety of the abortion drug mifepristone after a Supreme Court order last night keeps the medication accessible for now. The state's Planned Parenthood chapter calls mifepristone indisputably safe and effective. Governor Maura Healey called the Supreme Court move a victory for patients and providers across the country. Healey previously had ordered the state to stockpile thousands of doses of the drug when a Texas federal judge blocked access to it. Workers at the Bristol County Jail are cleaning up after a multi-hour standoff caused up to $200,000 worth of damage. The standoff in Dartmouth yesterday began when the Bristol County Sheriff, Paul Haro was launching a plan to try to prevent suicides, an effort that included replacing beds and other items. Some prisoners did not want to move from their housing units and issued a list of demands. The inmates destroyed furniture, started fires, smashed cameras, and dumped soap on the floors. 17 men who led the protest have been moved to other correctional facilities and will likely face criminal charges. The 24th annual Earth Day Charles River cleanup is set for this morning. Over 3,000 people have volunteered to clean the banks of the Charles. Emily Norton is executive director of the Charles River Watershed Association. She says most of the items picked up are single-use plastic food and beverage containers. From 2016 to 2019, the Earth Day cleanup here in our region, in the Charles, was recognized by American Rivers for the most pounds of trash collected and most volunteers mobilized. This year, we expect the volunteers will pick up approximately 57,000 pounds of trash. Norton's calling on the legislature to pass bills that would ban a lot of single-use plastic items. Last night, the Bruins beat the Panthers 4-2. to two. The Bees lead the playoff series two games to one. The Celtics lost to the Hawks 130-122. to The Celtics lead that playoff series two games to one. The Red Sox beat the Brewers in Milwaukee 5-3. to three. They play again tonight. It's 47 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, a slight chance of some afternoon showers, and highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. Last night, the U.S. Supreme Court blocked lower court decisions banning or limiting access to the abortion pill, forgive me, the abortion pill mifepristone. The medication will remain widely available while the case works its way through an appeals court. So the legal and political battle over abortion continues. NPR's Ron Elving joins us. Ron, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. A short unsigned order from the Supreme Court. We do know dissenting justices were Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Uh, What do you see in this order? For the moment, at least, it's good news for those who want access to abortion, bad news for those who don't want abortion to be available. About half the abortions in the U.S. are now done using this drug. Twenty years ago, the FDA said it was safe and effective in the first 10 weeks of gestation. But one federal judge in Texas earlier this month issued a broad ruling attacking that FDA approval as it applies in all 50 states, saying the agency had used unsound reasoning and flawed studies all these years ago. 
Uh, Now, that ruling was partly overturned and partly upheld by a federal appeals court, the Fifth Circuit Court in New Orleans. So now the Supreme Court has stepped in, sending the matter back to the New Orleans court for further hearings next month. Uh, After that, we can expect yet another appeal to reach the Supreme Court this fall, at which time the 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 outcome could be quite different. Uh, There were just two justices, as you say, publicly dissenting last night, Alito and Thomas, but there were six votes to overturn Roe versus Wade last summer, and this is still the same lineup of justices on the court. Are we are we seeing what amounts to the fruition of years of effort from uh, conservative activists? Yes, going back to the 1970s, there's been a movement to repopulate the federal courts with more conservative jurists. Now, that movement has been enormously successful in producing judges when Republicans have been in the White House, and that includes the judge who was appointed in Texas by Donald Trump, they're committed to a certain judicial philosophy and often to an anti-abortion agenda. And one manifestation of that uh, has been the membership in the Federalist Society. Not all of them are necessarily anti-abortion, but very much believers in a particular judicial philosophy. It began in law schools in the 70s, and now it's part of the background that's shared by most of the members of the Supreme Court. And over these same years, anti-abortion activists have become a critical component of the Republican voting base. Their leading organizations and their leaders have become enormously influential, uh, not only in Supreme Court nominations, but in Republican primaries, including presidential primaries. All of this happens at a, at a time when delicate questions are being raised about the court, aren't there? Yes, the abortion drama is happening against a rather dramatic backdrop of controversy involving the court itself. In fact, this week, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Dick Durbin, sent an extraordinary letter to Chief Justice John Roberts inviting the chief to come to the Hill and explain why the high court does not have a formal ethics code and why it has tolerated things such as Justice Thomas's failure to disclose lavish gifts and sweetheart real estate deals that he got from a billionaire Republican megadonor. And we're waiting to see if Roberts will agree to appear voluntarily or whether that's going to happen at all. The debt ceiling crisis. Uh, Happy resolution in sight, Ron? (laughs) Well, not close. Uh, and, And actually, it is only getting to be a little bit more parlous because the debt ceiling is getting closer and actually the revenue intake by the federal government in recent weeks has been disappointing. So the real crunch time now looks like mid, well, June perhaps instead of late summer. And the Biden administration wants a clean debt limit extension bill. But the House Republicans under Kevin McCarthy are insisting that we have to have deep spending cuts and first with no adjustments to revenue or Social Security or Medicare and no cuts for defense spending. That leaves a very limited target environment for cuts and whatever gets curtailed will have to be curtailed severely. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Now to the war in Ukraine. Russia's military has admitted one of its fighter jets had what they call an accidental discharge over a Russian city near the border with Ukraine. This is defense leaders from the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere meet to try to bolster Ukraine's arsenal. NPR's Joanna Kukisis joins us from Kiev. Joanna, thanks for being with us. Happy to join you today, Scott. And what do we know about this accidental bombing? So, yeah, according to Russia's state media, there was this huge explosion on Thursday evening in Belgorod, a Russian city of about 400,000 near the Ukrainian border. And at least three people were injured, and the explosion just badly damaged surrounding buildings. And yes, the Russian Defense Ministry later admitted in a statement that a supersonic fighter jet had indeed accidentally bombed the city. 
So what Russians usually bomb and shell in this area is the Ukrainian region of Kharkiv, which is about 25 miles southwest of Belgorod. Of course, Western allies of Ukraine have continued to try to help Ukraine defend itself from those attacks, and defense leaders from those nations met at the uh, Ramstein U.S. Air Base in Germany on Friday. Uh, what are they trying to achieve? So these defense leaders are in what's called the Ukraine Defense Contact Group, and their goal is to help Ukraine defend itself. This group meets every month and has provided a total of around $55 billion in security assistance to Ukraine, and this includes badly needed ammunition as well as heavy weapons like Leopard and Abrams tanks. And U.S. officials say 31 of those Abrams tanks I mentioned above could reach Ukraine this fall, and Ukrainian soldiers could start training on them within weeks. Abrams tanks are famously powerful and lethal. What sort of difference could they make in this conflict? So uh, Ukraine's defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, told us earlier this year when the U.S. promised those Abrams tanks that they could be a game changer. Because not only is Ukraine trying to reclaim occupied territory, it's also trying to defend itself as Russia tries to take even more Ukrainian territory in the east. But the arrival of the Abrams and the training to use them will come probably too late for Ukraine's planned counteroffensive because it's supposed to happen sometime this spring or in summer. There's also concern that Russia is set to ramp up its air attacks. And so Reznikov says Ukraine needs F-16s. And Ukraine's Air Force spokesman Yuri Ignat told us recently that Ukrainian forces see F-16 fighter jets as the best way to protect Ukrainian airspace. F-16 has a so he's saying that they can shoot down almost anything, you know, incoming missiles and drones, as well as enemy planes and helicopters, and they can also hit ground targets. And as if on cue, while we were talking to him, an air raid alert actually went off on his phone. So, you know, you can hear it here. And he just smiled wearily and shrugged as if to say, you know, I rest my case. Joanna, the uh, Secretary General of NATO this week said that Ukraine belongs in their security alliance. Is that likely that Ukraine will become a NATO member? Yeah, so I think the short answer, at least right now, is yes, eventually. Uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg visited Ukraine on Thursday, and it's his first visit since Russia's full-scale invasion began. And he said that, you know, Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. However, he talked about a membership process that's going to take years. And President Zelensky says, why should it take so long? We are, you know, not just defending our independence and existence as a nation, but we're also buffering you, our allies in the West, from Russian aggression. Zelensky wants membership talks to start as soon as this July. But of course, this does not sit well with Kremlin officials who say one of the reasons Russia invaded Ukraine was to prevent it from joining NATO. NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kyiv. Thanks so much, Joanna. You're welcome, Scott. There were echoes from history this week as a Russian court sentenced Vladimir Kara Mirza to 25 years in prison. Mr. Karamurza, a journalist and opposition leader, was convicted of treason for giving speeches that denounced Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Not only do I not repent of any of this, I am proud of it, he told the court. I support every word that I have spoken and every word of which I have been accused. His words may remind us of when Mahatma Gandhi was convicted of defying the law with his policy of peaceful non-cooperation with British rule in 1922. He told a judge he would 
Submit cheerfully to the highest penalty that can be inflicted upon me for what in law is a deliberate crime and what appears to me to be the highest duty of a citizen. Or when Nelson Mandela was convicted of inciting a strike against South Africa's regime in 1964 to defy apartheid and told a court in Pretoria, It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve, but if it needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Vladimir Karamurza told his court this week, I know the verdict. I knew it a year ago when I saw people in black uniforms and black masks running after my car in the rearview mirror. Such is the price for speaking up in Russia today. The world rings with concern for him this week. But what about next week, next year, or five and ten years? Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela survived their sentences to see their countries and the world changed by their work and words. But many more political prisoners have not, including Stephen Biko, the anti-apartheid activist beaten to death in custody by South African security officers in 1977, or Jamil Gafara, a Crimean Tatar activist who died in Russian custody this February, and others whose names can be lost in the swirl of history. Yet Vladimir Karamurza told his court from the defendant's cage in which he heard the verdict delivered against him, even today, even in the darkness surrounding us, even sitting in this cage, I love my country and believe in our people. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Dennis Lehane discusses his new novel, Small Mercies, set in 1970s Boston. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Ren- Noir, Cassatt, and more, now open, WorcesterArt.org. Here's a convenient way to stay on top of the news. The new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download it or update it in your app store now. It is 48 degrees in Boston at 819. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. 
President Biden is pledging to continue to defend the FDA's approval of mifepristone, a key drug used in medication abortions. The White House issued a statement after the Supreme Court granted a stay as the case works its way through the system. For now, mifepristone remains available in states where abortion remains legal. Police in the nation's capital are looking for suspects in two shootings last night. Authorities say eight people were injured, including a young girl, when they were indiscriminately fired upon. Police believe the shootings may be connected. They happened in the same area of the city. And the acting head of the Federal Aviation Administration is stepping down. Billy Nolan is expected to leave his post this summer. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streaming now on Peacock. From Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com NPR and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Intense fighting between warring factions in Sudan continues in the capital and at its airport. Ishmael Kushkush is a Sudanese-American journalist who managed to get this voice message to NPR while he was trapped inside a building in Khartoum. We are in the middle uh, between the uh, gunfire on, on both sides. We think they haven't uh, stormed the building yet because there are uh, several internationals in the building, but we just don't know um, how things are going to go. Um, There's also jet fighters, um, and we we fear that uh, mistakenly a missile could hit the building. Um, There are four children in the building and uh, a few elderly uh, uh, in the building. but, but that's, that's the situation uh, we are at, at the moment. Yet the Sudanese army says the U.S. and other countries are ready to begin evacuations of their embassy personnel. NPR's Jackie Northam joins us. Jackie, thanks for being with us. Morning, Scott. There are these reports that Western nations, including the U.S., will soon begin to evacuate their embassies. Does that seem credible to you? Well, the army is just one of the combatants here, and it is not in full control of Sudan. They're still fighting in Khartoum, including at its main airport. Uh, Saudi Arabia was able to get its citizens out today. So we'll see how it plays out during the day for Western nations. How many Americans are in Sudan, and, and are civilians included in their evacuation plans? There's about 70 Americans at the embassy in Khartoum, and um about 16,000 U.S. Uh, citizens are believed to be there. Many of those are dual nationals. You know, the State Department says U.S. citizens are not part of any evacuation plans and that they will have to make their own arrangements to stay safe. The State Department uh, sent out travel advisories over the past couple of weeks saying do not travel to Sudan or leave if you're already in the country. And uh, the State Department and the White House said Friday that it is not standard practice to evacuate civilians abroad, especially in these circumstances when they've been given plenty of warning. So American citizens currently in Sudan are on their own. Is there U.S. guidance to all those Americans who uh, apparently won't be evacuated? Yes, there is. Stay off the roads, stay indoors, shelter in place, 
do not try to make it to the U.S. Embassy. If the airports are uh, are unusable, how would the U.S. plan to pull people out of Sudan in any case? Uh, neither the Pentagon nor the State Department are saying what options they're looking at. Uh, you know, I spoke with Cameron Hudson, and he's a former diplomat who focused on Sudan, and now he's with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And he told me if they can get a sustained ceasefire, then there could be an overland convoy to, say, Egypt. The other option, he says, would be for the U.S. to use a Sudanese military air base to land a plane and deploy a helicopter. Let's listen to what he says here. And that that helicopter would be able to land on the embassy compound. There's a big grassy area in the middle of the compound. So you could probably do it. But, you know, Scott Hudson says the optics of just taking embassy people to safety aren't great, you know, leaving others behind. There's also the problem if something goes wrong. Uh, You know, people remember the chaotic evacuation from Afghanistan in 2021. So really, the best thing would be a ceasefire. And Pierre's Jackie Northam, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. The U.S. CHIPS Act has become a catchphrase among policymakers since last year. The American legislation was designed to try to constrain China's advances in making semiconductors. It also tries to emulate Taiwan's success. But is that possible? NPR's Emily Fang went to visit a key hub in Taiwan to find out. I'm in one of the world's most successful technology incubators, but you've probably never heard of it. The Industrial Technology Research Institute, or ITRI, created companies now worth hundreds of billions of dollars that make the world's most advanced semiconductor chips. Here we can do design, we can do manufacturing. Zhang Shizie, the general director, shows me around. This is one of the facilities, including a chip factory, that ITRI provides for Taiwanese companies. You know, all sorts of ingredients that we can cook different kind of good dishes for everybody. Itri began in 1973, at a time when politically China was starting to isolate Taiwan diplomatically, convincing country after country, including the United States, to switch its allegiance from Taipei to Beijing. So this really made Taiwan uh, feel like a pariah state. This is Monique Chu, who researches the semiconductor industry at the University of Southampton in England. She describes how, facing diplomatic pressure, Taiwan's government made a very intentional choice to make semiconductors. The government in Taipei at the time was really determined to foster economic development in order to consolidate its political legitimacy at home. Hence, Itri the result of merging three existing government institutes but given an independent budget. Today, about 60% comes from the government. Its first task was to buy semiconductor technology from a foreign company, something to get it started and that they could improve upon. Xu Qingtai was studying in the U.S. but came back to Taiwan to be part of Itri's new electronic research program in 1976. It was an exciting opportunity for him. Most of the people in this group are young, A lot of them were just 30 years old, like my age at that time. So we bring in a lot of innovation. In 1980, just a few years later, Itri helped launch United Microelectronics, its first commercial venture. The company is now one of the world's biggest chip makers and worth more than $20 billion. In 1987, Itri's then-director Morris Chang launched and ran its second venture, called TSMC. That's now the biggest, most advanced chipmaker in the world. Zhang, the current general director I met earlier, says quite a few of Itri researchers went on to become top executives, spitting out cutting-edge research done at Itri's labs into commercial ventures. 
and this technology later can license to the companies, and the company can use this to upgrade their technology. This snowball effect set Taiwan on track to pioneer advanced chip making and created funds to support even more research at eTree. Industry can work with any company in the world, but we want to let the industry say, you can always come back to eTree. This is Shi Qingtai again. He was eTree director during much of the 1990s. Looking back, he stresses, Taiwan's success happened because of a unique combination of economic, political, as well as cultural factors. It had a pool of young, highly educated, and diligent engineers who are willing to work extra hard. And it also had huge markets in both China and the U.S., and even natural gas reserves the Japanese discovered. So can countries like the U.S. do the same? You plant the same orange tree on the riverside, but when you move that into the other side of the river... It's a Chinese idiom, meaning it won't work. Context matters. Work ethic, the uh, value system, it's all different. Taiwan, he says, is a small economy. The U.S. is big, and it wants to innovate across a wide spectrum of technologies. By contrast, what Taiwan did was do one thing really well. And so far, in part thanks to eTree, no one has been able to catch up. Emily Fang, NPR News, Xingzhu, Taiwan. Most of the freshwater on Earth is frozen in massive ice sheets and glaciers. Now this is the sound of that ice disappearing. That crackle is caused by the pop of tiny air bubbles and melting ice on the coast of Greenland. As the planet gets hotter, that melt speeds up. Scientists now find that the effects reach thousands of miles away. Reporters from NPR's Climate Desk have been detailing those effects in a series of stories all this week, and they join us now. Lauren Summer, Rebecca Hersher, and Ryan Kelman. thanks so much, all of you, for being with us. Hello. Hi. Thanks. Hi. Lauren, let's begin with you, if you could, please. Why focus on melting ice? Yeah, as science reporters, you know, we cover a lot of studies about how fast ice is melting, but it, it feels really far away to most people, right? What we are hearing from scientists, though, is that the effects of this melting ice are not far away. They're in our backyards. They actually affect our everyday lives. Yeah, everything from the weather that fuels wildfires to food for endangered whales to flooding in major American cities, it's all connected to melting ice. So we thought it was really important to connect those dots for people here in the U.S. Well, Lauren, tell us about some of those um, faraway connections. What struck you? Yeah, so we traveled to the Arctic, um, where there's just this vast blanket of ice that covers the ocean for most of the year. And there's actually a connection all the way to where I live in California. Uh, The community we visited, which was Kotzebue, Alaska, they're watching that sea ice shrink at an alarming rate. And that ice normally reflects a lot of sunlight. It's kind of like a shield. When there's less ice, more heat is absorbed by the ocean. And scientists are finding that seems to be altering weather patterns that ripple all the way down to the western U.S. It actually increases the chances that there'll be very dry heat waves in the fall. And, you know, that's weather I'm familiar with because it's when really dangerous wildfires happened here in the West, the kind that just seemed really impossible to contain. I spoke to one firefighter, Mark Macias of the St. Helena Fire Department in Northern California, who has actually fought a fire like that, the glass fire, which was three years ago, and it, and it really takes a toll. Try to do a lot, and feels like you can't win, and you're trying, you know? Those are the tough ones. 
You know, that was a fire I watched as a reporter, but also personally, because we had to evacuate some of my family. And it just really drove home for me that the stakes of these changes, these kind of far-reaching climate effects are, are really high. Ryan, let me turn to you, because you traveled to uh, Nepal for this series and went to a community where ice, I gather, poses a real danger. That's right. We visited a place that's downstream of a huge, unstable lake. And that lake formed because a glacier is melting. And if the lake releases its water, it could wipe out everything downstream in a flash flood. So I walked up to the lake. It's near 16,000 feet, sitting above all these villages. And I couldn't help but think about this gentleman we interviewed who lives right downstream. Like, I could see his farm from where I'm standing at the lake. He told us that he literally sleeps in his clothes every single night in case he has to flee. It struck me how similar his story is to people I talked to not so long ago in a town just 20 minutes from my own home. Mm -hmm. And I was reporting in this town called Ellicott City. It's in Maryland. And that town also has flash flooding, not from glaciers, but still related to climate change. And some folks in that town also told me that they have trouble sleeping because they're so afraid of a flood. It was basically the same story, but 10,000 miles apart. Rebecca Hersher, what, what about your experience reporting on melting ice? Did it, uh, did it strike close to you, too? Yeah, you know, to a wild degree, because one of the places I was reporting on was the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica. It's sometimes called the Doomsday Glacier because it's melting so quickly, and when it disintegrates, it could cause a ton of sea level rise. But it's, it's very, very far away. I couldn't go there myself, so I worked with a scientist who actually spent weeks living on the glacier doing research. Her name is Erin Pettit, and she's been studying this glacier for many, many years. She felt like she had a handle on how quickly it was melting, but she didn't. Everything that we thought had been going on was happening like twice as fast. And so everything's been happening a lot faster than we expected it to just a few years ago. And when I heard Pettit say that, I was really struck by it because if the ice melts faster, then sea level rise here in the U.S. also happens faster, which is so close to home. Like for this reporting trip, we visited the city of Galveston, Texas, where they're getting ready to build a $34 billion seawall to hold back that water, water that is partly coming from 8,000 miles away in Antarctica. And that connection between Antarctica and the coast, that is true for basically every coastal city from Texas to Maine. With this series, you've you've made it quite clear that ice melting away can affect us really just under our feet. Uh, you're reporting on this and, and watching devastating consequences in many cases. How do you keep perspective on that? Hmm, yeah, I mean, it can be very disheartening, right, to hear about this, to report on it. But... You know, we did hear a very clear message, you know, especially from scientists that, yes, these are very severe impacts, but it's not too late to do something about it. You know, the future of this ice depends on what we all do and whether we can cut emissions from burning fossil fuels. Lauren Summer and uh, Rebecca Hersher, Ryan Kelman with NPR's Climate Desk. You can see all of their reporting online at npr.org slash icemelt. Thank you all for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. 
It has been several months since two brothers were arrested in West Texas for a fatal shooting that involved migrants. Men told investigators they thought they were firing at wild animals. One suspect was the warden of the West Texas Detention Center. The other worked for the sheriff. As Angela Kachirga of KTEP reports, people in the town question why the investigation has stalled. It's late afternoon and golden sunlight reflects off this watering hole in West Texas known as the Five Mile Tank. The reservoir is about five miles from the town Sierra Blanca. Originally for cattle, wild animals also come here. And sometimes people stop for a drink of water after crossing a rugged stretch of nearby border. On September 27th, a group of 13 migrants were at this spot when they heard gunshots. A man was killed, a woman was wounded. It just makes me sad to come here. More than six months later, residents of the town like Bill Addington question why the two men arrested in the shooting have not been charged. In fact, the two suspects, brothers Mark and Michael Shepard, have left Texas. The case against them remains in limbo. They claim it's they were shooting at javelinas, and I just don't buy it. Mark Shepard told investigators he and his twin Michael were out on a Tuesday afternoon looking for ducks, then later said javelinas, wild pigs that roam these parts. He said he was using binoculars when Michael got out of the truck, placed the shotgun on the hood, and fired off two rounds. The men then drove away. You know, I know firearms. We used to sell them at our general store. The type of gun used is important because it would indicate how close the men were to their targets. Addington is standing near the edge of the road with the watering hole in full view. A shotgun doesn't have long range. Berenice Castillo Casillas survived the shooting. She says nobody deserves this. The situation is tense in this border area where she and the other migrants crossed into Texas. She has no doubt they were targeted. She and the other 11 migrants at the scene later told investigators the men yelled insults at them in broken Spanish before driving off. Investigators used Border Patrol surveillance cameras in the area to locate the truck. The Shepard twins were accused of manslaughter and assault with a deadly weapon, released on bond and returned to Florida, their home state. They have not been indicted. Michael Shepard, the former warden, refused to answer questions according to Texas Rangers. His lawyer has not responded to numerous calls requesting comment. Mark Shepard worked for the sheriff in a civilian role. His lawyer said he, quote, did nothing wrong, period, unquote. And he said his client just happened to be with his brother during what he referred to as a hunting accident. Well, you can say it shouldn't never happen. Mike Sheets is a county commissioner. He, like many in this rural area, is a gun owner. They also didn't go by what's supposed to happen with a gun. You identify your target. No, nosotros estamos destrozados. Napoleon Sepulveda says the shooting destroyed his family. His son Jesus was the man killed. Reached by phone in Mexico, Sepulveda says the 22-year-old left their small farming community, headed for Austin, to earn money to build a house for his wife and two little girls. Sepulveda asks the U.S. government for justice. The killing has left a scar on Sierra Blanca, says Addington at the watering hole. I'll never look at it the same way I did before. He plans to put up a memorial to mark the spot where a man lost his life. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherga in Sierra Blanca, Texas. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Mifepristone remains available. The Supreme Court last night issued an order blocking restrictions on the abortion medication while legal challenges continue. Abortion rights advocates in Massachusetts are emphasizing the importance of the drug that's been approved by the FDA for more than 20 years. The state's Planned Parenthood chapter called Mifepristone indisputably safe and effective. Governor Maura Healey called the high court ruling a victory for science, medicine, and the law, but she also said she expects further attacks on reproductive freedom. It is Earth Day. Among other activities in Massachusetts today, several groups are joining forces with 3,000 volunteers to clean up trash along the banks of the Charles River. It is 48 degrees in Boston. Cloudy today, a slight chance of showers this afternoon, and highs reaching the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out, cambridgeculinary.com. Waterstone, a new luxury, independent, and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington, waterstonelexington.com. And Grogan & Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th, Learn more at groganco.com. Musician Indigo D'Souza thinks a lot about her own mortality. It helps her figure out what she wants to do with her life. The pandemic shook everyone awake for a second and made them consider their lives and their meaning and why they're hanging out with the people they're hanging out with. A conversation with the indie rock star plus the latest news. Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing stories to illuminate data and trends that shape the world today through its podcast, After the Fact. Learn more at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. There's a memory from his childhood that Dennis Lehane has never managed to shake. The best-selling novelist of Mystic River, Gone Baby Gone, and other books recalls the summer of 1974. The city of Boston had erupted in protests over court-mandated busing to desegregate public schools. Dropping home, his father took a wrong turn straight into a protest, and from the back seat, young Dennis Lehane saw what looked like life-size dolls hanging from street lamps. People lit them on fire, and it was it was medieval, and it was it was. Um... A very strange thing to be trapped in when you were nine years old. Dennis Lehane's new novel, Small Mercies, is set during that summer of 1974. A black student dies in a baffling subway accident. A white teenage girl goes missing. And uh, a note to our listeners, uh, our discussion will uh, refer to the use of racial epithets. The novel follows the girl's mother, Mary Pat Fennessy, on the hunt for her missing daughter. She is loving, hardworking, ferocious, and a very specific protagonist for Dennis Lehane. I've known a lot of Mary Pats, and I'd never seen them represented in literature before or on film. 
There is a certain type of woman, usually a woman who came out of the projects that I remember from being a kid, but also some who just lived in, you know, they lived in what we called three decades. Um, women who came from uh, poverty and they were capable of going toe to toe with a man in a fist fight. That wasn't saying they'd win, but they were capable of doing it and they were reasonably fearless. So I got this image in my head of a of a woman getting back talked by somebody, a ma a male, and beating the hell out of him in a bar. That's kind of where I started. Mm. At one point, following up in one of her own leads, Mary Pat goes to Harvard Yard. She feels that students and hippies and, to use her terminology, snot noses are all staring at her. Why? Because she's poor. Um, she doesn't fit in this world. If you were to take the subway from, I think it was seven stops, from Broadway to Harvard on the red line in Boston, you, you know, that's changing worlds, it's changing cultures, it's changing, it's vast economic difference. It's a route that I took when I was a kid. Um, my mother insisted that I take piano lessons, uh, which I did not want to do, but she made me take piano lessons with this nun over in Harvard Square. And so I would, every Wednesday, take the subway from Columbia Station, which is where I grew up in Dorchester, to Harvard Square, get out. And I don't know if my mother intended it. I know my mother wanted to give me some type of culture. But what happened to me was I didn't take to music, but 20 bookstores within a square mile in Harvard Square when I was a kid. And that's what I took to. If I got early, if I got there early, I just wandered bookstores. And, and it opened up my eyes to the world. So when Mary Pat goes there, she says at one point she would feel more comfortable in another country, Ireland perhaps, um, than she would feel in Harvard Square. Mary Pat doesn't like the idea of school busing. Uh, black kids from Roxbury bus to South Boston, white kids from South Boston to Roxbury. And at one point she muses that the politicians who support it, like Teddy Kennedy, are, quote, profanity alert, are, quote, just another case of the rich in their suburban castles in their all-white towns telling the poor people stuck in the city how things are going to go. Pretty compelling argument, isn't it, for, for both blacks and whites? Yes, and that was something I really wanted to examine, that desegregation of the Boston public schools had to happen. So on one hand, you have what needed to happen, which is desegregation. Then you had the method by which it happened, which was selective force busing which was not necessarily a good idea. And it was a case of the neighborhoods, the working class neighborhoods, once again, being told without a vote what they were gonna do. And the people who constructed that social experiment could sit back without it affecting their lives one bit. Let me ask you about the language. Um, of course. Yeah, a lot of it's raw. Yep. A lot of racial epithets. Yes. Those are, those are hard to use these days, aren't they? They should be, but they were very easy to use back then, at least where I grew up. Mm -hmm. There's a photograph on the front of the book that was taken by Eugene Richards. This is a, a, a little boy looking up. It looks like mounted policemen, and it says, Southie, God's country, on the back of his T-shirt. Yes, and that was a Eugene Richards shot taken uh, during a busing protest uh, right out in front of South Boston High School. And to see it now... And to see the, the graffiti that he captures, and graffiti that was written 
all all over the city, not just South Boston, but all over the city, including KKK, um, including uh, the worst racial epithets you can think of, and kill all the fill in the blank. Um, that it's it's shocking and it's sobering because you realize you can't hide from those photographs. There's a a line that's been ringing in my head of yours. Hate takes years to build, but hope can come sliding around the corner when you're not even looking. Oh, that's that's uh, that's my favorite line in the book. I'm glad. I'm glad I got you. Um, the book is very much about the price of hate. Mary Pat will acknowledge that she has some racism, but she she doesn't understand the depths of it at all. She thinks, well, compared to all these other rabid racists around me, I'm not really that racist. And this becomes a journey for her to understand the terrible legacy of her racism, the way it was passed down to her, the way she passed it down to her children, and and how it's all ultimately connected to everything that goes on in this book. And um, and that's the, the great tragedy. And at one point, she she comes to a realization that that it's something that was sold to her and that then she sold it to her own children. And she has this heartbreaking line for me because I didn't even plan the line. It just popped out of me, which is, you know, they know, they always know, even at five, they know that what you're telling them is a lie, but you wear them down. And then ultimately they embrace it. Nobody's born racist, just not, doesn't happen. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say that this late in the world's becoming, if you will. But you don't see two four-year-old kids show up at a playground and not play with each other because one's black and one's white. But by eight, that may be very likely. So I, I really wanted to look at it as this, this virus that is handed down generationally. And, and that's, that became the impetus to write the book. That became what, in, in some ways, was an expulsion for me. I think of of things I've been carrying around inside of me since I was nine. Is Small Mercies your last novel? I don't know. I really don't know. So I'm out of contract for the first time in 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, I've been swept up into this wonderful world of um, premium television that I love. I'm a social being. It was never natural for me to sit in a room pecking away all the time, alone. So. This book, though, was written while I was actually running a television show, and it came out of me because it needed to come out of me, which is how you become a writer in the first place. So is it my last book? I don't know. If it is, I'm okay with that. That's great. It seems like a good mic, mic drop to me. But if it's not, it'll be that another book needs to come out of me, not because I owe the publisher a book, not because of my deadline, not because you know I'm worried about my agent's bottom line. None of that. I just will need to tell a story. And if that happens, I would love to write another book. Dennis Lehane, his new novel, Small Mercies. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Here's a push to go all electric. The federal government's trying to entice auto manufacturers to make the switch with both carrot stick. There's a lot of money to lower the price of electric vehicles and create a network of chargers, but also strict new rules on emissions. Car makers will need more batteries, lots of them. As the race to go electric reaches full speed, what will that mean for jobs in America? 
There's a lot of great things happening in the United States, which will ensure that over the next 10 years to 20 years, we'll look back and see this huge industry, which will be in 20 years from now. When did it all start? And it started basically now 2022, 2023. At Conversation tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with our friend Camila Dominoski. Tell your smart speakers to play NPR or your member station by name. Oncologists often advise patients to stick to their usual routines when going through cancer treatment. A plumber named Frank Marchand knows this instinctually. He has barely taken a day off since he was diagnosed with colon cancer seven years ago. One of his customers, Karen Brown from New England Public Media, wanted to understand why. So I don't know how, I don't even know how old this thing is. It's not that old because it's 1.6 gallons. Frank Marchand is sitting on the floor of my bathroom, tightening the bolts on my toilet's water tank. Let's see what happens here. I had noticed a hospital bracelet still hanging off his wrist from his treatment that morning, and he agreed to let me bring out my tape recorder. This is my 94th chemo treatment. That's over seven years since a colonoscopy at age 60 found stage 4 cancer. He goes to the hospital every other week and often recognizes other patients from growing up here in western Massachusetts. I call them hellmates in the chemotherapy room. One of them was my chemistry teacher from seventh grade. And I, I looked at him and said, what the hell are you doing? Are you visiting somebody? Because now I got leukemia. His former teacher didn't live long after. And I've known him and his wife for years, doing their plumbing work and getting in that nasty crawl space under their house. I was in the, in the line to express my condolences at the, at the wake. And his wife, Janet, was first in line. She said, oh my God, he was like enough that even his plumber showed up. Frank Marchand has been a plumber for 47 years. He's loved water, all kinds of water, since he was a child living across the street from a narrow brook. And I would go over there after school each day, ripping sod out of the side banking and damming that brook up. So I think planted in my brain was the concept that whenever water misbehaves, you're responsible for making it behave. So about my toilet, what do you think? I'm going to see if I can find another handle for that. Sometimes on his plumbing rounds, Frank meets clients facing the same cancer ordeal that he is. A man was on his sofa down to 85 pounds. Uh, They called because they didn't have any hot water. But he hadn't eaten in about a week and he was destined for hospice. After Frank fixed their water heater, he went upstairs to sit with a dying man and ask a question. Have you ever thought about what you're gonna think about on your deathbed? I mean, you don't wanna lay there bouncing around wondering, why me, why me, and concentrate on that. He goes, no, I haven't thought about it. Well, Frank had, and he said he wasn't planning to dwell on his regrets. But what I'm gonna spend my time thinking about while I'm on my deathbed is the best corned beef hash I ever had in my life. They almost incinerated the potatoes. They were burned on the outside and really soft inside. Caramelized onions. Oh my God, I loved it so much. I sat there and ordered another plate of it. Those transcendent moments, Frank told the man, that's what he wants to think about at the end. His wife called me after he died to say that he took to heart what you were saying and he was peaceful. As Frank tells me the story, his hands submerged in my water tank, I notice him coughing a lot. 
These masks are so full of dust. Do you want some water? Can I give you some water? I think so. Yeah. I had to wonder, wouldn't it be easier to take a medical leave? At 67, he could certainly justify retirement. I told myself from the very beginning, my immune system is going to have to work really hard to fight this disease that I can't control. So do I want to sit on a sofa and worry about what's growing inside of me? Because now it's going to deal with, with bile and anxiety and angst about what's going on that you can't control. Plumbing, on the other hand, is one of the few things he can control. We're still tightening it. But how does he cope with what he knows is coming, with mortality itself? For a time, he had help from an unlikely comfort, a childhood imaginary friend who long ago kept him company in the sandbox. His mom used to wonder, Who are you talking to? My friend. But there's nobody there. Yes, there is. My friend is here. Over the decades, Frank stopped hearing from the friend through marriage, children, divorce, second marriage, until shortly after his surgeon told him in a recovery room the cancer was terminal. And I'm lying on the bed completely alone, scared out of my wits. And who shows up but the imaginary friend? He says, hey, what's going on? Why are you shaking? I, I, I don't know. I mean, the news that I just got, I have no idea how much time I have left. I know I'm never going to get to finish the projects that I started, all the things I hoped for in my life. And he says, you know, you don't know this, but I've been with you all your life, watching every move you make. And I can understand how you're, you're anxious about having to do this, but I'm not going to let you do this alone. I'm going to go with you. Of course, Frank tells me, he knows that's his own voice, his own conscience. And yet? That experience took the weight of 20 tons off my shoulders to come to the realization that I'm not immortal and to prioritize the time that I have left. By the time Frank is done talking, I almost forget he came over to work on my toilet. See, that's all fixed now. So I'm planning to call you when I need to replace it. So you're going to answer the phone then, right? That would be the plan. If it rings to heaven, then you got the wrong number. A few weeks later, my radiator started to leak, and Frank came back. Hospital bracelet on his wrist, stories to tell, and no plans to stop. For NPR News, I'm Karen Brown. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. And from Staples, with services to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples Stores or Staples.com. This is NPR. Thanks for listening to Weekend Edition Saturday here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in just a few minutes, WBUR's Martha Beebinger discusses the Supreme Court decision blocking lower court restrictions on the abortion medication mifeprestone making it still available while litigation continues. 
It's 48 degrees in Boston. Clouds today. A slight chance of some showers this afternoon and highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden offered some thoughts on paleontology. <laughs> Do you know how frustrating it would be to give a T-Rex with little arms lip gloss? <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. This week we pitch Weird Al Yankovic in a parody of the theme from Jurassic Park. Sure, it has no words. That just means more possibilities. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the Supreme Court permits the continued use of a medical abortion drug while an appeal proceeds. Then, Republican and Democrat working together to avoid default on debt. Wastewater under new surveillance. Ramona Ossibel's new novel, The Last Animal, in which modern science is deployed to restore an ancient mammal to its old homeland. Should it? I appreciate so much the way that science asks these big what-if questions, and then the novelist can swoop in and start to imagine what it might have felt like. Also new music from Blake Rose. Well, B.J. Lederman still does our theme music. First, our newscast at Saturday, April 22nd, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The Supreme Court has granted a stay in the case of the abortion pill Mifepristone. The decision means a drug can remain on the market as the appeals process plays out after a federal judge threw out the FDA's approval made more than 20 years ago. Democratic California Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi says courts are not in a position to judge the work of scientific experts who say Mifepristone has a safe track record. If the court should decide that it has superior scientific knowledge without any benefit of research or trials and the rest, we have a real problem in our country. More court rulings are expected as that case plays out. A former prosecutor who once led the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation into former President Donald Trump will be deposed by House Republicans after all. Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg had sought to block Mark Pomerantz's testimony, but NPR's John Stempen reports the DA's office and the, Repub- and the uh, Republican-led House Judiciary Committee have reached an agreement. Pomerantz investigated Trump's hush money payments to adult film actress Stormy Daniels during the 2016 presidential campaign. Pomerantz eventually quit after disputes with the district attorney. Pomerantz was anything but reclusive, writing a book about his experiences and touring talk shows. Pomerantz will meet with the panel next month and will bring a lawyer from the DA's office. That's unusual because witnesses are typically not allowed legal representation during a congressional deposition. Bragg has been concerned the Republicans might try to interfere with his prosecution of Trump. Trump denies Daniels' claim the two once had a romantic tryst. John Stempen, NPR News. 
Despite a truce in Sudan, clashes between forces loyal to rival generals have been ongoing since last weekend. Hundreds of people have been killed. Sudan's army is now claiming that it will help evacuate foreign nationals, including those from the U.S. The U.S. is drawing up evacuation plans to get embassy staff out of the country if needed. But NPR's Jackie Northam says the plans do not include American civilians. There are an increasing number of attacks against Westerners, U.N. personnel, aid workers, and diplomats. The State Department is sending out warnings to U.S. citizens in Sudan. Here's spokesperson Vedant Patel. We have been uh, very clear about the need to for American citizens to remain indoors, to stay off the roads, to shelter in place, and to avoid traveling to the U.S. Embassy at this time. The State Department has set up a conflict task force for Sudan to deal with the crisis. It's been coordinating with the Pentagon, which has deployed more forces to nearby Djibouti. How to get embassy staff out is the issue. NPR's Jackie Northam reporting, and you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. More now on the Supreme Court ruling. Massachusetts lawmakers are still on their guard after the court maintained access to Mifepristone for now. Governor Maura Healey called the ruling a victory for science, medicine, and the law. But she also acknowledged that, quote, the next attack on reproductive freedom is just around the corner. Senator Elizabeth Warren called on the Biden administration to work with drug manufacturers, distributors, and health care providers to keep the abortion drug available. Seventeen inmates will likely face criminal charges after leading an hours-long standoff at the Bristol County Jail. The situation began yesterday morning when prisoners issued a list of demands. They did not want to move from their housing units, while Sheriff Paul Harrow planned to install some suicide prevention measures. The sheriff said he replied in writing to the demands, and then the disturbance escalated with inmates destroying furniture, starting fires, and taking other actions that caused up to $200,000 worth of damage. New information is emerging about the scope of the documents leak by Jack Teixeira of North Dighton. The 21-year-old Air National Guardsman stands accused of leaking classified government documents in a social media chat room. The New York Times reports that Teixeira had been posting sensitive information online as early as February of 2022. That's months earlier than previously reported. The Times says he shared the documents to chat rooms with as many as 600 members. It is Earth Day. The city of Gloucester is marking the day with the 400 Trees Project. It aims to plant 400 new native trees and preserve another 400 of the city's oldest trees. The number 400 also celebrates the city's 400th anniversary. It's 48 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, a slight chance of some showers this afternoon. Highs in the low 50s. Some showers likely tonight, tomorrow, showers and a chance of thunderstorms. Sunday's highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thank you for being with us. We begin the hour with news of the Supreme Court order issued last night on the abortion drug 
with the Pristone earlier this month, lower court decisions banned or limited access to it. For now, the order means the drug will continue to be widely available for medication abortions in the U.S. We are joined now by Martha Biebiger, who covers health care for member station WBUR in Boston. Martha, thanks for being with us. Glad to be here, Scott. And what did the Supreme Court do exactly last night about this abortion pill that uh, a lot of people couldn't name even a couple weeks ago? Right. And Mifepristone may still not be a household name, but it sure is getting a lot of attention. So today, that's because justices paused lower court rulings and agreed to keep Mifepristone available for the immediate future. At least two justices, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, dissented. Now the case goes back to the appeals court, which is scheduled to hear arguments in less than a month. It's quite likely the Supreme Court will eventually hear this case, too. What are the practical immediate effects for patients? Well... Mifepristone, in combination with another abortion pill, can still be given through the 10th week of pregnancy. It can be prescribed using telehealth and the mail. That's something the lower courts had said should be stopped. Nurse practitioners and physician assistants can continue to offer it as well as physicians. And most significantly, Scott, Mifepristone is still an approved FDA drug, even though a federal judge in Texas said it should not have been approved 23 years ago. Martha, the ruling's been out just a few hours. Uh, What have you been able to hear from doctors and legal experts so far? Well, I hopped on a Zoom call last night with a smiling Dr. Kate White just after the news broke. She's an OBGYN at Boston Medical Center and performs abortions. There's not been a lot of good news in any of these rulings recently, so I have to say I was surprised and incredibly relieved at this one. Dr. White says she's relieved, Scott, because she can keep offering patients one of the safest abortion options. That's this two-pill combination that includes mifepristone. On the other hand, many abortion opponents told me they're disappointed. Mary Fiorito specializes in abortion law at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and she says at least she won't have to wait long because this appeals court's going to investigate the mifepristone safety concerns soon. The more fact-finding there is on the possible medical dangers of it and the long-term effects of taking it, particularly for younger girls, I think the better off everyone will be. Fiorito is especially worried about how easy it is to order mifepristone online and take abortion pills without ever seeing a doctor or nurse. But clinicians say when patients follow the guidelines, even if they don't see a doctor or nurse, an abortion using pills is still far less risky than a full-term pregnancy. Martha, what's ahead uh, in this dispute over mifepristone? Well, it's kind of a tangled thread. There's the case we've been discussing about whether mifepristone should remain available. That will be heard by the federal appeals court in mid-May. There's another federal court decision, this one out of Washington state. It says there should be no change in access to mifepristone. So that could become part of a Supreme Court review. And then in addition, the largest mifepristone manufacturer in the U.S. just this week sued the federal government saying, you can't take our drug off the market. So we could be talking about mifepristone for months, maybe well into next year. Member Station WBUR's Martha Biebinger. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Pressure is growing for President Biden to negotiate to raise the nation's debt ceiling. The longer President Biden waits to be sensible, to find an agreement, the more likely it becomes that this administration will bumble into the first default in our nation's history.
Uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, speaking this week, and next week he plans to introduce a bill that would raise the debt limit to $1.5 trillion, but it would cut spending on some of the president's priorities, including COVID relief, green energy programs, and student debt cancellation. The president wants the debt ceiling raised with no conditions. Meanwhile, the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus is offering its own plan. We're joined now by co-chair Josh Gottheimer, a New Jersey Democrat and caucus member who happens to be traveling in Ghana now. Representative Gottheimer, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And Mike Lawler, a New York Republican who joins us now. Representative Lawler, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. And Mr. Lawler, let me address this first question to you. If if that Republican plan comes up for a vote next week, will you vote for it? Yes. You know, my three parameters throughout this debt ceiling negotiation have been very simple. The president must negotiate with the speaker. We have to cut spending over the long term and we must not default. And I think the plan outlined by uh, Speaker McCarthy certainly creates an opportunity to start the negotiations. The president thus far has refused to do so. And so I think, you know, this is an opportunity to put our cards on the table and move the conversation because at the end of the day, we have an obligation to find compromise and to advance forward a solution here to not only lift our nation's debt limit, but ultimately get us on the right fiscal path. Congressman Gottheimer, uh, what do you hope the president will do? First and foremost, the key here is that we not default. So we have to put the whole question of the debt ceiling and raising the debt ceiling aside. And then we also can, at the same time, address our longer-term fiscal health issues. And that's acceptable to do both. And it's a false choice to say that we can't do both. And what we want is our leadership and the president to sit at the table and work this through. Listen, the, the proposal that Kevin McCarthy put up, you know, you know I, I think even if it passed out of the House, will not go anywhere in the Senate. So whenever they pass that, if they do, it'll be dead on arrival and we'll be back to the same spot. And how do we make sure that we keep sitting down, which is what our caucus believes in, sitting down at the table and getting a solution that achieves both objectives, making sure the debt ceiling is not an issue and also dealing with our long-term fiscal health issues. And that's what our proposal is really about. What about the uh, the call Congressman Gottheimer, for the creation of a separate fiscal commission. Hasn't that been tried before and hasn't worked out? I think in this case it's different. And what we've recommended is actually putting a fiscal commission to set that up and suspend the debt ceiling. In other words, take that off the table while this commission does its work. Experts, economists come back and make make a set of recommendations to us. We must address some of these long-term fiscal health issues. And so I think the commission is a great way to take some of the politics out of this. And let's be honest, what's happened here is you're seeing both sides volley back and forth and play political games with the fiscal future of our country, including playing around with the debt ceiling, which would literally put the full faith and credit of the United States at risk. Only the government of China will win if we send our economy off the cliff uh, and downgrade our credit um, and put everyone's 401ks and savings on the line. How serious is any discussion about the nation's debt if Social Security and Medicare, biggest sources of spending, are apparently off the table. Congressman Lawler, do you want to take that? Sure. I mean, look, I've said from the very beginning uh, that we need to protect Social Security and Medicare. As it stands right now, uh, both programs are going to have serious challenges over the next decade. 
And I think part of what Josh is alluding to with the creation of a fiscal commission is to look at what we need to do long-term in a serious, sober, and bipartisan way to address the challenges to both of those programs. I think in the immediate, we cannot default. We have to pay our previous debts incurred. Do both of you worry that given today's fractious political environment, even as you say default can't occur, in fact, it can and will occur if a majority of people in Congress decide that they want to vote in accord with their own best political interests, won't they? In all of my conversations, I've not spoken to one person who thinks default would be a good idea. So I do not think at the end of the day that we are going to be in a situation where we default. I think, unfortunately, the politics sometimes drags this out in a way that is unnecessary and unhelpful. But I think we will certainly get to a solution. And as you know, I think we're showing here in this conversation, people like Josh and I are very focused on finding solutions and common ground and solving problems. Representative Gottheimer? Mike is spot on, and you know, which is why you want you know, reasonable voices on the table. Am I concerned? Deeply concerned. Do I believe we've got enough people who are reasonable, who understand the gravity? Yes, but that doesn't mean, to your point, that we can just hope that it happens. We've got to actually work to make it happen, which is what we're doing. And my hope and confidence is that in these next weeks, given how this could be a summer, you know, early summer issue, like a June issue, that everybody sits at the table until we figure this out, because we can't afford not to. Representative Josh Gottheimer, a Democrat, and Republican Congressman Mike Lawler, both members of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Danny Trejo plays bad guys on TV in a zoo cookbook. It's all about love and appreciation and eh, maybe a left hook here and there. It has some great recipes, and I have my favorite of all times, you know, my uh, fight night nachos, which are like uh, just perfect for, you know, guys over watching the fights or a football game. And we do our nachos special because every time people make nachos, you always run out of the top. Yeah, I'll say I've noticed that too. Later today on All Things Considered, the secret to avoiding naked nachos you can find out. Listen online at your member station website or npr.org or by tuning in on the radio. you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the singer Blake Rose discusses his new EP, You'll Get It When You're Older, inspired by his sister's battle with substance abuse. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. It's 48 degrees in Boston. A slight chance of some showers this afternoon. Cloudy, highest in the low 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill, Chauncey Hall School, and Waltham, Mass. 
For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd. chch.org slash open house. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. President Biden is welcoming the Supreme Court's decision to grant a stay in the abortion pill case. A high court has blocked restrictions set by lower courts, meaning for now Mifepristone will remain available in states where abortion is legal. The White House is again rejecting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's proposal to cut spending in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. The administration says the president is happy to discuss a budget, but the president wants Congress to raise the debt ceiling without conditions. And Tennessee Governor Bill Lee says he will soon call a special session to focus on guns following the mass shooting at a Christian school in Nashville. State lawmakers adjourned their regular session without acting on the issue. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com NPR. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Healthcare can vary dramatically depending on income, gender, where you live in the world. All sorts of factors can drive mass global inequality. Health officials have tried for years to improve this, but they say they've been missing a key tool. Here's NPR's Nurit Eisenman. Spoiler alert, the missing tool here is data. It stands to reason that you can't design policies to ensure everyone is getting good health care unless you know who's falling through the cracks. Yet global health officials say there's surprisingly limited information on that. One reason? Data often isn't collected on some of the world's most vulnerable people. We know that 9 out of 10 deaths in Africa are not reported. That's Samira Asma, head of data analytics for the World Health Organization. Imagine the huge missed opportunities to bridge inequality gaps. And this is not just an Africa issue. Francesca Perucci of the United Nations Statistical Division says a survey was done of government statistics offices across the world. 39% could not adequately collect data on migrants. 27% had difficulties collecting data on older persons. Same thing when it came to gathering stats on people with disabilities. Now, one reason for these data challenges is that lower-income governments often lack resources. But Perucci says it goes beyond that, among all governments. The importance of understanding inequities is often not prioritized enough. And Oscar Mujica says this is galling. He's an advisor on health equity with the Pan American Health Organization. Mujica notes that world leaders repeatedly vowed to, quote, leave no one behind when they adopted a series of global goals to improve life for the world's poorest by 2030. Every country has made that promise. Those goals include specific statistical targets to track progress. However, we don't have among the 240 plus indicators 
not a single one that measures inequality. But the World Health Organization is hoping to change that with a new database they unveiled this week. It pulls together a large chunk of the figures on health inequality that are available, 11 million data points on 2,000 different measures of health, all in one place. Users can then generate all sorts of analyses pointing up where there's inequality. Mujica says even with the data gaps, this could be a game changer. It helps us in creating accountability because now, when it comes to the health barriers facing marginalized groups, he says, we're running out of excuses to remain blind. Narit Eisenman, NPR News. COVID cases are the lowest they've been in nearly two years, as measured by the number of cases reported at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but by another measure. COVID cases may be rising. That's according to the National Wastewater Surveillance System, also from the CDC. Well, many people in this country aren't swabbing their noses for COVID these days. The virus still shows up in sewage. Health experts say wastewater surveillance could be a new way to track trends for many kinds of diseases if they can keep the system going. NPR's Ping Wong went to a sewage treatment plant in Virginia to learn how the surveillance is done. The best time of day to collect a wastewater sample is in the morning. That's according to Raul Gonzalez. So depending on who I'm talking to, I'll either say I'm a fecal microbiologist, public health microbiologist, or I'm an environmental scientist, or, you know, it's, for me specifically, it's water. Gonzalez runs a wastewater surveillance program at the Hampton Road Sanitation District. It's a sewage treatment operation based in Virginia Beach that processes waste for 20% of Virginia's population. I wanted to learn how wastewater surveillance happens, how virus in your gut could flow from your toilet to the sewage treatment plant and end up on a COVID dashboard. So on a recent morning, Gonzalez took me to the Virginia Initiative Treatment Plant in Norfolk to catch people's morning poops. We stood over a small metal hatch that opened onto a pipe of incoming sewage, and his colleague John Nelson put a sterile plastic bottle at the end of a long pole. So I'm going to have to extend this out. Um... It's actually a modified paint pole that you would use for getting high places, you know. And he lowered it down about 18 feet into the river of wastewater to fill the bottle. All right, so that's our grab sample. Stick it on ice and we're done. The water comes from toilets, of course, but also showers and sinks from homes and businesses that drain to this plant. By the time it gets here, it smells just a little sulfurous and it's not brown, but a murky gray. Once bottled, the wastewater becomes a precious sample. It's chilled in a cooler of ice and driven back to the labs at the sewage utilities headquarters. It's a ritual the team has performed every week since March 2020. Gonzalez and his team were early adopters of looking for COVID in wastewater, and over the past three years, they've got their process dialed in. Concentration happens here. We call this our environmental lab or our dirty lab. It's like samples come in here. The first step is to pass some of the liquid through a paper filter. Staff scientist Kat Yetka says this separates virus-containing cells from the sludge in the water. Some samples that they have a little bit more particulates in them and um, it might slow down the process, but this plant is usually pretty quick. It takes just a few minutes and then the filter gets bathed in chemicals to release the genetic material in the sample and to clean it off. What are some of the stuff that you're trying to wash out of the sample? Oh, we're just, we're just everything from solids? to uh, organic material, to salts. We're, we're just trying to clean up everything but like our targets that we're looking for. It's actually not that you're trying not to contaminate the poop, it's actually that you're trying to like wash the poop off the virus. Or yes, okay. yes. Oh, that's what, yes, that's what this workflow is. Once the sample is as clean as it's gonna be, it's time to start analyzing what virus is there. 
Hannah Thompson, a microbiologist at the lab, takes some of the liquid, about the size of a raindrop, and she breaks it down into many smaller droplets. She puts those into a machine that makes copies of the virus's genetic material so the levels will be high enough to read. When it goes into that replication, and it goes through 40 cycles of heating and cooling, heating and cooling, and it just, it's exponential growth, so by the end of it, we've got just billions of copies. This process takes a few hours, so we leave it overnight. Here in Virginia Beach, creating one wastewater data point takes two days and multiple skilled workers. Not every place does this. Some sewage plants just take samples, which they send off to state health departments or federal contractors to process. Many plants don't participate at all. It's completely voluntary. Right now, the CDC's national wastewater surveillance covers about 40% of the U.S. population. Gonzalez says that they're sticking with this process because it's a consistent record they've kept since the start of the pandemic, and it's useful for public health locally. Early the next morning, Gonzalez is back at the lab with Gila Stevens, a molecular biologist. She runs a sample plate through a machine to figure out how much COVID was there. I'm betting my money on a trend that's been going on for a while, so there'll be some COVID in the water. We were joking that if there wasn't, then we messed up on something. Right. <laughs> we're good. You see, see, I can already see it's there. The amount of COVID in the water is about the same as the week before, higher even than the peak of the Delta wave. Still, Gonzalez notes that hospitalizations and deaths in the region are as low as they've been this whole pandemic. I think the COVID load and some of these clinical metrics tracked really well until vaccinations started and mass infections. And then now there's this like kind of background immunity. Dr. Caitlin Pedati, head of the Virginia Beach Health Department, says that wastewater surveillance is good at showing broad trends over time. It's not perfect. None of these single data points are perfect. But if I look at my wastewater trends together with hospitalization data and maybe what's going on in my nursing homes or high-risk you know, facilities and populations, that's going to give me a decent sense of whether I think activity is going up, going down, staying the same. Wastewater surveillance got a lot of attention and funding during COVID, and many public health officials hope that's just the start. Gonzalez and his group in Virginia Beach are now looking for flu and monkeypox in their sewage. Polio and RSV could be next. But Gonzalez says that it takes a lot of time and resources to keep it going. He's part of a group of experts urging more funding for the national system. Experts say it could even serve as an early warning signal in the next pandemic, but it requires more investment now to make that real. Ping Huang, NPR News. Ah, now it's time for sports. The Oakland A's take off for the Vegas Strip, an almost perfect game undone in a totally original way. Do I really have to tell you what team and? Oh, send off for a friend. NPR's Tom Goldman joins us. Tom, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. All right, news of the week. <laughs> Oakland A's bought some land for a new stadium in Las Vegas, running out in the fans of Oakland who have suffered with them, exulted for them. It's just the future of baseball, just, you know, moving around to score the best deal. <laughs> you know, right now I don't think so. Uh, this possible A's move has taken years to get this far. If it happens, it would be the 
first baseball relocation since 2005, it would be sad for Oakland, another loss for a city once proudly teeming with pro sports. But MLB has been supporting the move, uh, comfortable as other leagues are now with cozying up to the Mm. lucrative gambling mecca, even though some forms of gambling remain taboo in sports. This is just for you. Cubs versus Dodgers yesterday. (laughs) Cubs won 13 zip, but Drew Smiley had a perfect game going into the eighth inning. Six outs from being the first Cub pitcher to throw up. You can see where this is going. Dave Peralta hits a dribbler. Drew Smiley and his catcher both charge the ball. The catcher has to jump over his pitcher to avoid a collision. Crunch! Flat! Kaput! There's the announcer's call. Oh, no. Come on. That can't be how it ends. Wow. Can't be. Oh, it is the utter cubness. And in line with this, oh, I hate to, Tom, this is your last week in our show. You're retiring after 33 years at NPR. Yeah. 25 is the network's first full-time sports correspondent. Uh, I think I can reveal you're now going to be a greeter at Caesar's Palace. <laughs> what? All right, my friend, what do you remember? Oh, gosh, Scott. Uh, do you have a year or two? Um, yeah. I'll give you two memories. Uh, in- interviewing the irrepressible fitness guru, Jack LaLanne, when he was 89. And I asked him whether people in this busy world had time to stay fit. And without hesitating, he said, stand up. So I stood up. He said, sit down. I sat down. Stand up, sit down. After about 10 of those squats, I was breathing pretty hard. And he said, see, you got time. Um, I remember Betsy Andreu, wife of former bicycle racer Frankie Andreu, a teammate of Lance Armstrong's. And Betsy was the foundation of a major story we did in 2006 on Armstrong's doping, alleged at that point. He admitted it to Oprah seven years later. Betsy endured big hits to her reputation and intimidation from the Armstrong camp. But for her, speaking truth was most important. Always impressed by that. Yeah. I want to play a clip from our first time uh, with you as a regular um, for the past 14 years, December 6, 2008, <laughs> talking about a disappointing show from the Portland Trailblazers. They were trounced <laughs> by else? the Boston Celtics. My 10-year-old son, who has at the top of his holiday wish list a Rudy Fernandez Blazer jersey and who watches NBA games while shooting a Nerf basketball against the wall, he turns to me and says, this is boring. Oh, now, I'd like to. I'd like to personally thank the Blazers for leaving me with a bored ten-year-old on a Friday. <laughs> well, Tom, is he listening to our show now? And what's he saying? <laughs> he's asleep. Oh. Oh. Uh, Scott, he's still bored. Yeah. Okay? No, yeah. I, 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 my children have no idea what we're saying. Uh, Tom, let me ask. Why are you leaving us? <laughs> Scott, I took a voluntary buyout during our recent financial crisis, and it feels strange right now, but seriously, I chose to go. And as you know, many of our colleagues didn't. Uh, They lost their jobs. They're hurting. It's important to remember their contributions to this network. I also want to thank all those who've sent me really nice messages. You and I have often talked about how people never came to NPR for sports, Uh, but the hope was once they got here, They'd get something out of what we did, and I think many did get it, and that, Scott, makes me happy. God, I'll miss you. Um, <laughs> in farewell, I, I have boulderized that most famous of sports poems. Ready? Ready. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. 
and somewhere people laugh and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy on Weekend Edition Saturday. Mighty Tom has taken the buyout. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) You're too good. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, we can tour uh, playing that. Well, all right. God bless. We'll be friends forever, but uh, I'll miss you our Saturdays here. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been a wonderful ride. Thank you so much, Scott. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Barry Humphreys has died at the age of 89, which means so is Dame Edna. Barry Humphreys portrayed his bewigged character, an Australian grand dame, for decades on stage, telling outrageous stories, taking questions, setting off laughter to the point of tears. When I interviewed him, yikes, 20 years ago, I wanted to ask Barry Humphreys about the entirety of his career in theater. He'd been in the original cast of Oliver, for example, but he just suffered a family problem and wanted only to be Dame Edna in our interview. We obliged, and I'm so glad. People are mesmerized by me because I have an aura. And I'm writing a one-woman show in the autumn of my life, yes, well, the late summer, Let's say the late spring of my life, in which I play some American icons. Really? Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, my. Emily Dickinson, the poet. Yes. Gertrude Stein. Mm Mm-hmm. And Zelda Fitzgerald in a mad scene at the end, (laughs) where I burst into flames, I'm afraid. (laughs) That's a trick. I won't really do it. It'll be an illusion. Ah, the theatre. There'll be a lot of yellow and red paper in the background with a fan blowing on it. Mm. There's so many people who come to your appearances and concerts, and you can tell that it's a major moment um, of their lives, really. It is. It's seminal. If I might ask you finally, what what do you make of this man, uh, Barry Humphreys, whose name seems to be Well, I'm grateful to him for the early days when he supported me. Of course, the tragedy is that when he asked me to be in his shows, he didn't realize I would be the draw card and people would be very happy if he wasn't in them himself. (laughs) His role became smaller and smaller as mine grew. My fame blossomed, his withered. I think of him only with pity. Mm-hmm. And he says horrible, horrible things to the press. He says, do you know what the latest is? He says, he is me. That's the oh. last straw. Yeah. I shared that sobbing with the Queen of England. Oh, really? And she said, there have been gutter journalists who have suggested yeah, that Prince know. Philip yeah. and the Queen are the same person. <laughs> Uh, uh, he, meaning Barry Humphreys, must resent your success terribly, doesn't he? It's a sad thing. He has to live with that, though, doesn't he? Yeah, the bitterness. Do, do you consider yourself, if I might ask finally, Dame Edna, a, um, a, a comedian, an entertainer, or someone rather more like, like Mark Twain or oh. Will Rogers, a, a philosopher? As much I as am anything. really a philosopher and a communicator. Mm-hmm. I'm closer to Mother Teresa than I am to Phyllis Diller. <laughs> Let me put it that way. <laughs> well, and um, yeah. I, I, I'm a person, a complex woman, mm-hmm. a grateful woman, an amazingly gifted woman, and yet a natural and normal woman. I have my drives and my juices still, so Dr. Inglesias tells me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've, I've 
got my wonderful femininity, but I'm single. Mm -hmm. I hope to remain so because it gives me an opportunity to still explore this wonderful, wonderful country. Dame Edna, who Barry Humphreys took on tour around the U.S. and the world. Barry Humphreys died today at the age of 89. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Supreme Court has issued an order that keeps the abortion pill, mifeprestone, available for now while litigation makes its way through the courts. After that high court move last night, abortion rights advocates in Massachusetts highlighted the importance of the drug. Governor Maura Healey called the ruling a victory for science, medicine, and the law, but also said she expects continued challenges to reproductive freedom. The state's Planned Parenthood chapter says Mifepristone is indisputably safe and effective. It is Earth Day. The city of Boston is holding its Love Your Block community cleanup. Today is the first weekend of the annual spring event. Today, volunteers will focus on cleaning neighborhoods including Alston Brighton, Charlestown, Chinatown, Dorchester, Mattapan, and Roxbury. It's 48 degrees in Boston with a slight chance of some showers this afternoon. Cloudy skies, highs in the low 50s. Some showers likely tonight, tomorrow. Showers, a chance of thunderstorms. Sunday's highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. Musician Indigo D'Souza thinks a lot about her own mortality. It helps her figure out what she wants to do with her life. The pandemic shook everyone awake for a second and made them consider their lives and their meaning and why they're hanging out with the people they're hanging out with. A conversation with the indie rock star plus the latest news. Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station, And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com slash careers. From LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against tax identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com slash NPR. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at RWJF.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Eve, who is 15, and Vera, who's 13, are what Ramona Osabel calls tag-along daughters to their mother Jane, year before they lost their father in a car accident, and are, quote, sad and angry and growing and trying, as the novelist writes, tagging along on a research trip with their mother to Siberia in search of woolly mammoth bones. It's even Vera, not the scientist, who almost accidentally dig up a frozen little mammoth body. Let's ask the author to pick up the story from there. They realized it was a frozen baby. 
It felt like a rescue mission more than a discovery, and they did not stop, but dug until their fingers were soaked and frozen. It was perfect. It was sad and beautiful and perfect, the size of a large dog. Pull, Eve said, and they reached their arms around the back, Vera on the front end and Eve on the rear, and they hugged it, this cold body, and they pulled hard, bracing against the cliffside until it came free with a sucking sound, and both girls fell backward. The mammoth smelled of the beginnings of rot. It was starting to thaw. Vera pushed it off herself and stood. She was elated and disgusted, and there was a rampage in her chest. Is this happening, she asked. It looked like the animal might at any time open its big eyes. Ramona Acevedo, the novelist and teacher, joins us now to talk about her novel, The Last Animal. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Let me get this out of the way. How do you feel about the irresistible comparisons to Michael uh, Crichton's Jurassic Park? <laughs> I'm all for it. I feel like we are doing utterly different things. But I also, I appreciate so much the way that science asks these big what-if questions, and then the novelist can swoop in and start to imagine what it might have felt like to be in those places and lands and with all these strange new old creatures. And how much science did you have to learn and um, imbibe and then express to do this novel? So I did a lot of research at the beginning to understand how CRISPR works and how gene editing... CRISPR is the... Yes, okay. Exactly. So CRISPR is the gene editing. So basically, we would take an Asian elephant cell, which is the closest living relative to a woolly mammoth, and we go in there just like a writer would and make our edits. We say, we want you to look less like an elephant and more like a mammoth. And we now know, we know a lot about the mammoth genome from finds just like the one described in that passage in the book. The science needed to be generally plausible for the novel for me, though the situation heads off in very fictional spaces. Tell us about the triumvirate at the center of this story, Jane and her daughters, Eve and Vera. They all share a great loss and, I might add, a distinct sense of humor. They do. Yeah. I grew up with a single mom and a sister, and I was really interested in that kind of triangle and the way that three is kind of an, a socially unstable number because two are usually in and one is out. And at the same time, the triangle is such a strong form. If you're building something, a triangle is a pretty good way to get it to stand up. And I wanted to look at the change in their family, that they were a family of four until a year before the novel opens, and now they are this new shape. And they have to figure out how to individually exist in that shape and how to relate to one another across every different line. And it's utterly different than it was before. And I feel like the channels are all open. They're making, especially the girls, are making jokes and making trouble and figuring out how to love each other and take care of each other in a completely changed reality. Yeah. I'm also, I must say, touched by their sense of doom. Some of it seems to be concern about the environment, but I can't help but thinking that their father's death turns them a bit in that direction, too. Absolutely. I mean, grief is not, it's not theoretical. The grief that I know a lot of us feel about thinking about the future of this planet is present, and that's certainly part of what the book is about. But it's also about a very immediate kind of extinction with their own dad, who they can't bring back. And I'm sure that a lot of us would relate to that question of, if you could bring an extinct thing back, something that you've lost, 
would you do it? And what would it feel like to do that? So they are, the project is to bring back this extinct animal. But I think for all of them, what they're really longing for and reaching for is their dad. Yeah. Help us understand why Jane commits what I'll just call a serious act. Okay, I'll leave it at that, which even she calls unethical, illegal, and has no chance of working. <laughs> we do desperate things when we are hurting and when we are tired of being unseen. So Jane is a woman and she is a little old for her position as a postdoc at, in a university lab. She's got two teenage daughters and people are not paying attention to her and they're not listening to her. She's kind of used to this. She's part of a generation that maybe was taught to accept that as the way things go and look for a side door instead. But her daughters have been pointing out to her how unjust they think it is and how much it's nonsense that their mother, who is smart and helpful and offering all these really good ideas and discoveries, is not being taken seriously. And between the shifty earth of grief and that anger, suddenly this very big move makes a kind of logical, emotional sense. And she goes for it and everything changes because of that. Yeah. I, I found the novel enormously entertaining, but it does raise some questions about if what we're doing is any more responsible than the people we hold responsible for uh, harming the earth. Absolutely. I mean, the ethical implications of reinventing a species, and it really is reinventing. It's not we can't ever bring back the identical creature that was lost. And this is a complicated decision. And I think there are a lot of potential unintended consequences, which was what made it such a wonderful landscape for a novelist, because we have both the sweetness of that impulse to try to return something wonderful to the wild that we helped make extinct and the potential problems. And like, that's where we writers like to hang out, the hope and the sweetness and the danger. Ramona Asabel, her novel, The Last Animal. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Scott. It was my pleasure. get it when you're older. How many of us remember hearing that as children? Well, now Blake Rose has taken that phrase as inspiration for his new EP, a musical portrayal of growing up and gaining wisdom, curiosity, and regret. You'll get it when you're older is Blake Rose's second EP release. He joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott, for having me. I appreciate it a lot. Mr. Rose, you're 25. What made you decide to come out with this kind of EP now? This EP has definitely been a long time coming for me. Uh, it's definitely my most vulnerable record so far. And the subject is mainly based around my relationship growing up with my sister, who's been battling addiction for a long time and I had a lot of questions um, that sort of remained unanswered for a long time because it's just quite difficult to understand that when you're a kid. The title, which is You'll Get It When You're Older, came from a conversation that I had with my sister when I was younger, 
when I was about 14 or so. We'd just met up on this family trip around Australia. She joined us from Europe. She was really like starting to get to a really dark place with it all. She, she was trying to help me understand, but she couldn't. And in the end, she just finished the conversation with saying, you'll, you'll get it when you're older, which obviously stuck with me for a really long time while I was piecing some of these songs together and it all clicked and made sense. And I, I realized that that's what I wanted to talk about. The song Magazine. What do you sense is being lost here? I was kind of alluding to what I was guessing my parents' perspective was on the situation with my sister, begging the question of, I wonder if you feel like you'll never have the daughter back that you had before she was an addict. It was really like they, they put a lot of um, blame on themselves for how it all happened. But realistically, like, there was nothing they could have done differently. It just happened the way it happened and there's nothing they really could have done about it. So I sort of wrote the song as a bit of a, a way to try and tell them that like they are amazing parents and that they've done an amazing job and it's just doesn't matter what you would have changed, what aspect of your life and her life, it probably would have all happened the same kind of thing. That was where the song sort of stemmed from. So you can take away the internet Do you find it easier to talk to people in a song than just the way we're talking now? 100%, yeah. I definitely have time to marinate on my thoughts, obviously, when I'm writing a song, and I can really express what I want to say, and I can say, take as much time as I like to say it. Let me ask you about another song. It doesn't have the same kind of indie pop vibe so much of the music here has, but it's, it's, it's more like a ballad in your arms. Yeah, I just wanted you to This song for somebody in particular? Uh, yeah, this was definitely written about someone in particular. I went back during the pandemic to Perth. I sparked things up again with this girl that I'd, I'd been on a couple of dates with in the past. And she ended up having a boyfriend that I found out like a couple of weeks later. And it just became this like, this weird thing because her boyfriend was cheating on her and she kept saying she was like about to leave. And by the time Christmas came around, that was like the final sort of thing. And I'd planned this whole um, romantic gesture and all that, and it fell through. And then I was just like heartbroken and sat at my, sat at my grandma's piano, which is now in my parents' living room, and just like wrote this song out. And it just came out really quickly. Like sonically, it just felt really nice. Well, and whatever happened to the relationship, she, she always winds up in a song. I guess so, I guess so. That's the circuit with a songwriter at this point, I guess. So when Christmas comes again, I hope I'm in your arms instead. I have been told that you have what I think I will chance to refer to as a peculiar hobby. Hello, 
Just Hello, my name's Blake. I just got a question for you. I was just wondering if I could sing you a quick song and see what you think of it. It'll be like 30 seconds. Yeah. Alright, sick. It's a cover of this song Golden Hour by Jake. Alright, here we go. Where's my number from? Oh, it's just a random number. I just typed it in. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why do you do that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question, Scott. It's a great question. <laughs> um, I, it actually started in the pandemic as well literally just started with me trying to find a way to, um, I guess, lift people's spirits a little bit. I started by doing it with covers and I was just picking a good popular song at the time. Crazy, like, I just, I really didn't expect anyone to pick up, let alone actually listen to a whole song. Yeah, it's all right, not bad. And so I kept doing it over the course of the last couple of years and yeah, people, people seem to really like it and it's a lot of fun for me. I get some absolute characters on the other end of the phone sometimes, it's hilarious. Let me ask you about the last song on your EP. It's called Already Be Dead. That song definitely sums up this EP and kind of what I was talking about earlier. It's basically me realizing like how much I respect my sister for what she went through because mm -hmm. I started to understand life a bit more. It's a little dark, but like I don't think I would have made it out the other side had I gone through what my sister went through. And that's it's essentially what the song is about, you know. really difficult to understand why people choose paths that they go down until you understand how life can push you towards making certain choices. Do you mind if we ask how your sister's doing now? Yeah, she's doing really, really well at the moment. She's got a new job. She's literally like one of the strongest people I know. And I think that's, that's one thing about addiction that's like a massive misconception for people that come out the other side of it. I think a lot of people yeah. look, look down upon people like that. And it's, it's really like the opposite. I feel like if you've been through that, to come out the other side of it shows so much strength, period. Blake Rose, uh, his new EP, You'll Get It When You're Older. Thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it a lot. Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Learn more about the music and artists you hear on NPR and discover new music by visiting npr.org music. There you can also watch a Tiny Desk concert or get an exclusive first listen of new music. Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. 
Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. Next at 10 o'clock, wait, wait, don't tell me, here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday, you'll get the latest from Sudan. Also, you'll hear from the creators of Mrs. Davis. It's a new Peacock series that is generating a lot of buzz. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill, Chauncey Hall School, and Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd. chch.org slash open house. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.